It's winter, and you can now get almost anything you need for the coldest months of the year delivered with Uber Eats. What do we mean by almost? Well, you can't get a ski slope delivered, but you can get dish soap delivered. Sunshine, that's a no. But a bottle of wine, that's a yes. A snow angel, sorry, no, but angel hair pasta. Uber Eats can definitely get you that. Get almost, almost anything delivered with Uber Eats. Order now. Alcohol and select markets. Product availability may vary by region. See app for details. Some families were born into. Some families are made from the ones we meet along the way. Our families are built on love and traditions, the memories we share, and knowing that life is better because we're together. Pure Life. 100% pure quality water. Refreshing every moment together. Visit purelifewater.com and discover where to buy Pure Life. This episode is brought to you by Allstate. Allstate wants to remind fans that mayhem is everywhere. Like at your pregame barbecue. While you prep your meats, that grease trap you forgot to empty is prepping to smoke your porch, garage, and the car inside. And without the right home and auto insurance coverage, the cost to repair this could eat up your savings. So bundle home and auto with Allstate to save and get protected from mayhem like this. Bundled savings vary and are not available in every state. Coverage is subject to policy terms and conditions. Today, Healthier is happening at CVS Health in more ways than you've ever seen. It's wellness destinations for seniors, including select locations with Oak Street Health and CVS Pharmacy. It's doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and everyone in between, offering quality care and support virtually, in person, and on the phone. It's in-home evaluations through Signify Health and meeting mental health needs through Aetna. And those are just a few of the ways Healthier is happening. To see more, visit cvshealth.com slash healthierhappenstogether. CVS Pharmacy, Oak Street Health, CVS Specialty, Signify Health, and Aetna are part of CVS Health. Eligibility and services vary by location and individual. Welcome to the Bike Radar Podcast, brought to you by the team behind BikeRadar.com, Cycling Plus, and MBUK magazines. If you enjoy this episode, please subscribe. And if you can do so, leave us a rating on your podcast provider of choice. It really helps us reach other cyclists like you. Welcome to the Bike Radar Podcast for episode four in our training series with Wahoo Fitness. This time around, I'm joined by Wahoo's principal sports scientist, Matt Cassin, and gravel racer, Ian Boswell. Boswell, who is also Wahoo's athlete liaison, spent seven seasons racing in the World Tour with Team Sky and Katusha before retiring from the road and turning his attention to gravel. Now he's one of the biggest hitters on the burgeoning gravel scene, winning the prestigious Unbound 200 in 2021. In this episode, and with winter fast approaching in the Northern Hemisphere, we go deep on base training and discuss whether high-intensity training rather than long, steady rides might actually be the answer for a lot of riders. Let's dive into the pod, but before we do, remember to give us a five-star rating on your podcast platform, and if you've got any questions for the team, drop us an email at podcast at bikeradar.com. Thanks for listening. Mac, welcome back for episode four. Great to have you on the podcast once again. Yeah, thanks for having me again. Hopefully people aren't getting too tired of my voice at this point. We've just got two more to get through. So hopefully that that's a, the, a good dose of Mac for the for the year. It's a very good dose of Mac. It's been, uh, it's been fantastic to have you on so far. It's been really interesting to chat. And we've got another guest following on from Nate last week on this week's podcast. And that's Ian Boswell. Ian, great to have you on the podcast. Yeah, thanks for, thanks for having me. I uh, always enjoy talks about training and the evolution of how things have changed and are continuing to change because it's, uh, yeah, still very much part of my world as an athlete. Well, hopefully we can tap into some of that knowledge and some of that experience that you have over your career as an athlete and in your role at Wahoo. So let's start with that. What is your role at Wahoo? You're the athlete liaison. So what does that mean for you day to day? 
Yeah. So, I mean, kind of this time of year is the busy season for me, um, which kind of correlates well to me continuing to to race and train. Yes. I mean, really just going through kind of 2024 partnerships and contracts and, you know, whether it's, you know, negotiating contracts with new teams and then once kind of that whole process has been sorted of, you know, which athletes, which teams, which clubs are we kind of supporting and working with next year? Then it kind of goes into the planning phase of, you know, where are we planning to activate around teams? Which teams can we shoot content with? You know, there's kind of many layers to it. Oftentimes, you know, around different campaigns and stuff, you know, working with different teams, figuring out which teams are kind of best suited to support us in different areas. So yeah, I stay, I stay plenty busy. And I guess it's funny to be on this side of the fence now, you know, working on, on the brand side of, of working with teams rather than being the athlete being asked to, to do things. And you mentioned it there, you're coming into your busy season that work behind a desk, so to speak, but you've also come to the end of a busy race season. So how would you summarize your 2023 to date? It was a success. Yeah. I mean, it's uh, it's funny. This, this whole gravel race, I guess my gravel career um, wasn't really anything I expected. You know, I very much retired from the world tour and I was like, oh, I'll go to these gravel events. And you know, I've kind of been sucked back into, you know, into into racing and, and training and preparing for them. You know, I guess Unbound is still kind of the one event that really motivates me just because it's it's so unique and and everything from the equipment to the preparation you know kind of your your strategy going into the race had a good run there again it is a five person deep podium so i was fifth place on the podium which which, i mean you know it was a bunch sprint with i think seven of us this year so you know you did most of the race with the front group and i got beaten a sprint which uh most people at that you know high level of sport can beat me in a sprint so in all pretty happy with that and um yeah kind of looking forward already to to next season to be fair, when you won Unbound, you won it in a two-up sprint, so you're not, you know. I did, I did, yeah. I guess Lawrence Tendam, we've we've actually finished last year. He was, I was third, he was fourth, and then this year for the first time, he beat me in the sprint. He was fourth and I was fifth. So, <laughs> yeah, maybe the tables are turning on my sprint game. Or maybe he just took it on the took it on the shoulder and decided to work a bit more on that. <laughs> true, true. Well, it's great to have you on the podcast and appreciate you making time at such a busy time. I know you're actually going off on, on holiday tomorrow with some bike riding included, but off on holiday nonetheless. As I said, really keen to tap into your experience because we, today we're going to talk about base training versus intervals. And that is a subject where I think some of the thinking has certainly evolved over the past 10 years. So let's get into it. Mac, as ever, we're going to start with the basics. What do we mean when we describe base training? Yeah, so the traditional view on base training is around lower intensity, higher volume riding. Generally speaking, the the base phase is more of a winter or off-season sort of endeavor. And the thinking is just to get a lot of volume to build a really robust aerobic base. Basically, that's where the, the name comes from, where you have a good foundation of aerobic fitness so that as you transition into the season um, and increase your intensity, you have a good foundation to build off of. And just whilst we're talking fundamentals, as I said at the top, we're going to discuss base training versus intervals. So what do we mean when we talk about interval training specifically? So interval training is just really a descriptor for when you're going out and doing efforts at prescribed intensities of, of set durations. I would make the argument that base training is a zone two. It's just a really long zone two interval. But generally when we talk about interval training, it's just interspersed higher intensity blocks with lower intensity blocks in between. And that can range from, you can do tempo intervals, you can do threshold intervals, you can do sprint intervals. It's really just, intervals really just breaks it down to you have a basically a higher intensity and lower intensity throughout the ride. That does actually tee up one of the questions I was going to ask later, and that is, is there a limit as to how long an interval can be? Typically, we associate intervals with being short durations of time, but in theory, it could be any length. Yeah, I mean, honestly, when it comes to like even a five-hour base ride, 
how I've always written them and prescribed them and how they're, they show up in the, the system app is you have a very short, like five minute warm up that's lower intensity. And then you have basically a four hour, 50 minute block of endurance interval and then another five minute cool down at the end of it. So really interval can be as long as the ride. And, but generally it's most people just prefer to think of it in terms of higher intensity. So those shorter duration intervals. Yeah. As I mentioned, you're off on holiday tomorrow off to Mexico. So thinking about your training for the winter ahead, will you as a gravel racer come back into the base training phase after that holiday? I am bringing my bike to on holiday to Mexico. So I will be, I will be riding, you know, I guess one thing that's like drastically shifted with me compared to, you know, I guess my life now compared to when I was, you know, racing in the world tour and at team sky, you know, we were doing kind of these typical old school base training, you know, in November, December, you're doing long miles, you know, sometimes, you know, 25 to 30 hours a week, mostly just riding your bike. I also had the the luxury of having free time to do that. Now I live in Northern Vermont where winters are cold and, and dark and, you know, riding outside and doing that kind of volume is just not possible. So yeah, I mean, I guess one of the biggest differences now in my life is I don't take huge periods of time off the bike. You know, I used to, you know, you finish your a road season and you're kind of cracked. You know, you you may take four weeks where you don't even want to think about the bike. You don't want to ride the bike, which psychologically is is, is of benefit. Physiologically, and, and Mac could probably attest to this, you know, you can lose a lot of fitness in four weeks, especially as a pro cyclist. You know, you really do a lot of damage by, you know, staying up late, eating too much, drinking too much. And like you start again, you're like, oh goodness, I've put on 20 pounds and I haven't ridden my bike and I do, you know, an hour ride and I'm bonking. So now much more of my training kind of throughout the year is much more less volume overall, but much more consistent, you know, and the setup that I have here at my house with, you know, a kicker bike and riding on system, I'm kind of always doing something and I'm not doing as much of this typical, you know, four hour endurance rides. Oftentimes, you know, it, it's jumping on the kicker in the morning for, you know, sometimes a 45 minute, you know, strength session on the bike in system. And then maybe in the evening I'll, I'll jump on and do a virtual ride, or maybe I'll do another sh- kind of shorter, lower intensity interval session, but just much more regular riding. And because the volume's not quite as attainable as it was, substituting that with some intensity, you know, allows me to kind of maximize that time that I am training compared to, you know, like I said, having the freedom of doing a, a five or six hour ride. Well, I think actually you're, you're, you're almost the perfect case study for this podcast because you, you have all your experience as a pro road rider and clearly are still riding ahead of a lot and are insanely talented in the gravel scene, but you've also perhaps transitioned to a style of training that's more relatable to those of us who don't have as much time to train as pros and are more reliant on intensity as opposed to, to volume. And that really is at the crux of this podcast. How can someone like me or someone who only has five hours to train use intensity to replace the, the lack of volume that you might not be able to achieve through a traditional base training phase through through winter? So, Mac, I'll, I'll come to you next. Uh, this is actually a, a question that was posed by a member of the Bike Radar team when I said that I was uh, due to speak to you two guys today. Is base training actually necessary for the majority of regular riders who don't have that time to train like a, a pro or can you actually take shortcuts through higher intensity intervals? So I wouldn't use the term shortcut, although I appreciate where that that comes from. I am of the opinion that, you know, the classical base training model is not applicable to the majority of people and it's not a necessary component. Sort of like when we talked about the history of power meters and fitness testing, you have to look at what those things were based off of. And you have basically the traditional base training is based off of old school European riders who their job was to ride their bike and you can't ride your bike hard all the time, but you have to ride your bike all day. That was sort of the 
mindset. So it was the only way to do that is to ride low intensity. And so when the pros do it, and then that's how you hear about, oh, these pros would do all these miles and they're pros now, you kind of make the conclusion that, okay, that's what you need to be at that level. And that's not necessarily true. It's just that's what they were doing and they got really good. But some of them probably would have been much better off doing less volume. And some of them, even today, there are probably some riders out there who would probably benefit more from doing less intensity and more volume. Like there is a lot of variability from person to person, but unless you have 40 hours a week to ride and recover, you know, just a traditional base, just having, you know, three weeks of just low intensity is probably going to be detrimental to your fitness rather than beneficial. Well, let's briefly dive into that traditional way of thinking. Coming back to you, Ian, how did the winter pan out for you in the past when you were riding with Team Sky, for example? Yeah, well, I mean, as I kind of said earlier, you know, oftentimes started late November and, and it kind of is like panic training. You you very quickly realize like, oh man, I, I'm really out of shape. You know, over the last four weeks, I like, you know, went back to essentially being, you know, an amateur rider where like, like I said, you, you do an hour and a half ride and you, you're bonked and you're sweating. You're like, this shouldn't be the case. You know, four weeks ago, I was, you know, finishing up the Vuelta and, you know, at the kind of peak of my, you know, fitness, you know, so a lot of that training was panic training. I'm not, I'm not sure if you guys have spoken about just the, the change of nutrition as well. You know, at the time when I was, especially at Team Sky, you know, this low carb training was so, it was so common in, in the world tour. Um, that's been another huge change in kind of what I'm doing now is like carbohydrates are now king and, you know, every ride is, is fueled versus, you know, doing five hour rides with, you know, a protein shake and, you know, an omelet for breakfast. I don't do that anymore. But, you know, as Mac was kind of saying, you know, pro riders of the past did have this, there was this notion, you know, even when I was at team Katusha, we had a rider or a director at the time, uh, Dmitry Konachev, a, you know, Russian champion, you know, and his training method was like, oh, you know, this is what we did in, in the Soviet union and, you know, the early, you know, 1980s, you know, it was, you do 150K one day, you do 200K, then you do 250K, and then you do a rest day, you know, all in the small chain ring, super easy, super low in intensity. But most people, even world tour riders don't really have the luxury of doing that much volume. And I mean, yes, if you live in South of Spain or South of France, like you can potentially have that luxury of, of having that weather. But, you know, another huge factor now is the social media side of training. You know, athletes can see other people's rides on Strava. And so you kind of get sucked into this mindset. And this is kind of what Mac was alluding to of, oh, well, I saw that, you know, Tom Pidcock did a 40 hour week. So maybe I should do a 40 hour week. Well, Tom Pidcock, this is his job. He's probably also getting a massage. He's working with a sports nutritionist. You know, he's sleep, you know, he doesn't have kids. He's sleeping throughout the night without being woken up. And is that really the most optimal training for him? Like possibly, but a lot of, I think still a lot of world tour riders train too much. You know, and that's one thing that I've noticed and how many recreational riders, even if you're racing as category one, or if you're doing gravel races at a high level, very few of us are training and, and racing grand tours, which is a huge difference as well. You know, if you're training for, you know, a grand tour, which is 40 hours, you know, over the course of a week, yes, maybe doing the volume to prepare for that is appropriate. But if you're training for a one day event, even something like, like unbound, you know, which is, you know, 10 hours for the winners, you don't necessarily need to be doing 40 hours a week because you're training for a single day event. So yeah, my, my mindset around training is, I mean, I guess I wish I knew what I knew now eight years ago when I was in the world tour, because, you know, I feel like you can be much more efficient with your time. And that also just allows so much time for, for more recovery, you know, better nutrition, rest and stuff off the bike as well, which I think is a huge, a huge factor that you kind of miss when you are training so much, you know, you're, you're oftentimes riding through lunch, so you're skipping a meal and you can, yes, you can fuel on the bike, but you know, fueling on the bike is never kind of quite the same where you can't consume as much as as you would if you're, you know, sitting down at your table having a, a proper lunch. 
So that's really interesting because this is a topic that we spoke about with with Nate Wilson from Team EF last week around the uh, evolution of training knowledge and how guys are coming into the World Tour younger, partly because there is so much knowledge out there and, and also the tech's so accessible now with the power meters and smart trainers. Clearly, you mentioned there the, the effect that that's had on nutrition and the change in thinking in nutrition. But do you also think the traditional base trainer model is being slightly challenged at a pro level with World Tour pros on the road? Will most riders still be going back into that base phase after their holidays? Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Getting engaged is a moment worth cherishing. A one-of-a-kind ring that you design at Blue Nile can help your love sparkle. Just choose your diamond and setting. When you've found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Finding the right engagement ring can be nerve-wracking. At Blue Nile, you'll have the expert guidance needed and a diamond guarantee that ensures you're getting the highest quality at the best price. Cherish all of life's moments and save up to 30% at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Whether you're making a delicious family meal or a post-workout snack, choose the farm-fresh taste of Eggland's Best Eggs. Only Eggland's best hens are fed their proprietary all-vegetarian feed. That's what makes their eggs more nutritious. With 10 times more vitamin E, 25% less saturated fat, and 6 times more vitamin D compared to ordinary eggs. Eggland's Best. Better taste, better nutrition, better eggs. Visit egglandsbest.com to learn more. I mean, I think there is still some sense of base training where like, yes, you're not doing intervals as much. You're kind of, especially for the the world tour riders, you know, the, the, the fat adaptation is still required to be able to be efficient enough to ride through a grand tour or, you know, even a, a multi-day stage race like Perry Nice. So I think there is still an emphasis on more volume, less intensity, but having just spent some time over in France with some world tour riders, you know, they are starting intervals much sooner in the year. And, and some of those, you know, it's not necessarily, they're not doing VO2 max intervals, you know, after a, a three, four week vacation, but, you know, lower intensity kind of torque intervals, like higher resistance, you know, strength building workouts are really a great way to kind of get in that intensity. You know, you're building different systems that are sometimes harder to get in the middle of the year. So you, you do see more riders kind of doing these low gear torque. And also it's a good time to like work out some imbalances that you may have from the season. You know, oftentimes very few riders are, you know, pedaling at 50, 50 power on each leg. So Oftentimes in the, the early season is a great time to utilize this available time to kind of work out some weaknesses, work on your stability on the bike. And that's kind of more easily seen and found out with bigger gear, lower cadence efforts. And Matt, coming back to you, sitting on the, the sports science side of the fence, as you do, does that match your experience in terms of the evolution of training and the evolution of the thinking behind it in terms of where someone should spend most of their time or more of their time? Yeah, I, I think it does. It's always tricky when you're trying to, again, trying to compare and take knowledge gained from pro to a world tour, like professional riders, and try to condense that down to people who have a full-time job, who have a family. I, I do think that the notion of 
intervals year round has gained a lot more acceptance, especially when you look at the rise of, you know, the cyclocrossers, the Wout Van Arts and the Vanderpools, who throughout their junior careers were doing full road seasons. And then instead of having a winter of base miles, they did a full cyclocross season. You kind of saw those were great anecdotal examples of, you know, you can, as long as you are smart about it, you can do intensity pretty much year round. You still need a month or so at that level of, of no intensity, which you could argue is base training or just time off the bike. But the notion has really changed that, you know, as long as you're doing it properly, there is time and and it is okay to do intensity year round. I think where that kind of really fell apart early on is the notion of you use racing as intensity. And so when you try to then add extra intensity on top of that, on top of volume, and then doing racing, then you see guys who just fall apart because that's that's asking way too much of them. But now, like if you can take a balanced approach to it, a smart approach to it, then then yeah, the notion of only using racing for intensity or, or not doing intervals even in the winter is that's kind of gone by the wayside. And I would even argue that, you know, time in the gym, like like Ian was talking about, in the winter you use that time to sort of figure out imbalances and work on that. I would argue that gym training is pretty intense interval training. You might not think about it that way, but that's a time, even in the winter, if you're just doing intensity, high volume, but you're going to the gym, that would be, in my view, higher intensity interval training that you're still doing because it still does have a role and a positive impact on where you're going to be next season. So bringing this back to to everyday riders, I appreciate that there's no such thing as a, a typical rider, but if we create a hypothetical rider who has eight hours a week to train and they're thinking about how they need to train over the next two to three months over the winter in the Northern Hemisphere... Broadly speaking, how do you think they should be splitting their time in terms of traditional base training rides, heading out on a group ride on the weekend, but then also focused indoor training, interval sessions, structure training in the week? It's always going to be, it, it depends. Um, I know we're just going for a pure hypothetical rider here. I would say I'd, I'd agree with the sentiment Ian had that doing a lot of higher torque, sort of resistance, muscular endurance style intervals is going to be really beneficial that time of year. If you do go out for a group ride, you always just need a kind of modulate how intense maybe the week after that is. If it's just a chill group ride and you're just with some friends going around basically a coffee shop ride, then doing intensity is fine. If it's like some of the group rides here in the winter where there's like a full-blown race for two 20-minute sections, then yeah, you want to dial back the intensity you would do in the rest of the week. Regardless of the time of year, I would say that if there's time, there's nothing wrong with like a three-hour endurance ride. If all you have is three hours, I probably wouldn't recommend that. But again, like we've talked about in previous episodes, like cycling is an aerobic endurance sport. And to do that, you need solid, a lot of mitochondria in your muscles and a lot of capillaries in your muscles. And the best way to do that is lower intensity training. It's not to say you can't do it else with, with higher intensity, but that's not really the way your body responds to high intensity to the same extent that it does with the lower intensity riding. Yeah. And George, just, I mean, to kind of add on that, and I guess, you know, I'm like I said, kind of in a good case study, you know, just because where I live and work schedule and stuff, you know, I, I oftentimes throughout the winter am doing, you know, eight to 10 hours a week. You know, and oftentimes that is more, you know, it is training. I am improving my my overall fitness and just kind of where I'm getting to. And similar to a lot of people, you know, I assume in the UK or in, in the Northern Hemisphere, you know, you are at some point in the spring, if you're any bit serious, like you may have a trip planned to to Mallorca or to, you know, California, you know, somewhere where you're like, hey, I'm going to, you know, in February or March, I'm going to go somewhere warm and I'm going to do a bigger training block. I've kind of done that over the last couple of years. And so oftentimes my mentality as well is I want to be fit enough and, and prepared enough that I can go somewhere warmer and I can, 
I can then all of a sudden do kind of a, a week of base training, you know, and where I'm, my body's already prepared enough to handle going from indoor riding, you know, of eight to 10 hours a week. And I'll oftentimes mix in some, some skiing or even, you know, longer walks, you know, especially here in the wintertime when you have snow, it's like trudging through the snow is, is still pretty, you know, strenuous. But then when, once, you know, I do have the opportunity to go somewhere warmer, I can ramp up that volume and do kind of a, a week or 10 days of endurance. And it's not, I'm not going to kind of blow up three or four days into my, you know, I guess vacation, my cycling vacation and, uh, and not be able to get the most out of that time away. And so I think that maybe if anything, if someone does have eight hours a week, I think the consistency is really important. And oftentimes, yes, people do have, you know, a group ride on the weekend that they might go on. That's, you know, two to three hours. I would say that would be, that would be great. But throughout the winter, I think the thing that I've noticed the most, not having the time that I sometimes would like to train is just being consistent, you know, and, and if that's even, you know, a Monday, Wednesday, Friday ride in, inside, you know, that's better than trying to cram two big rides in into the weekend. We're like, cool, like I did eight hours this week, but over the course of, you know, fr- Saturday, Sunday, I did two rides, you know, being able to kind of do something most days or, you know, every other day, and then maybe a longer ride on the weekend seems to, I mean, it seems to work best for me. I'm not a, I'm not a sports physiologist like, like Mac, but I do think there is something to that consistency over just trying to cram things into to two days a week. Yeah, I would, I would definitely back up what Ian just said. Like you can do an eight hour week. You can, in theory, you can do an eight hour week in one day if you just have an eight hour ride, but that's not the the best way to go about it. Definitely. And I think most people who are going to be more time constrained, it's easier for them to carve out a consistent chunk of time several times a week rather than one large time, one large chunk or two large chunks. And so, but yeah, the consistency riding every other day is much better than riding two big weekend days and then nothing for five days. And coming back to the idea of using a, a training camp to build endurance or do a block of base training in a relatively short and efficient period of time, is that is that a strategy that our hypothetical rider can also use? So finding consistency through the winter, but say booking a week in Mallorca in uh, in March or April, is that beneficial to have that week? And, and will that give you enough base training to not cheat, not shortcut, but you know, convert to, to find that effect that you might not have been able to get through the winter? Yeah, absolutely. Like if you have the the capacity to do that, I, I would very much encourage it. One, because that just sounds like a lot of fun. I've always enjoyed the early season team camps. You know, you get to go somewhere a bit warmer. I always liked it because I was coming from elevation, so go down to sea level. So that always felt a lot better. Yeah, if you can be, it can be a good also motivator for you during that winter. Like Ian was saying, like you want to be ready for it. So if you have that sort of first goal of the year is, okay, in March, I'm going to go do like a four-day fun bike trip somewhere warm and, and get just a lot of miles in that can keep you motivated to stay consistent leading up to that and then it really the only thing that you want to be careful about with that is that you allow yourself time to recover afterwards you don't want to just go right back into the same if you've been riding you know an hour every other day if you do a big block like that you want to give yourself like a proper seven day you can do, still do recovery spins but give yourself a proper time to to recover and let your body absorb that because that is going to be a massive overload compared to what you're used to. So that would be the only caveat I would throw in there. Just make sure that once you do that, you back off and recover. And bringing this back to intervals, in the last episode, we spoke about training zones and the, the seven power zones that you use at Wahoo. We also spoke about polarized training, actually, which leads me on to my next question. If someone is looking to do intervals, something you mentioned previously is avoiding the dreaded tempo. Tempo is ineffective for a lot of people. So more often than not, is it about going hard during intervals at VO2 max or above and then during the recovery, making it really easy? 
Yeah, I would say that, you know, generally speaking, most people are going to respond quite well to those VO2 type intervals. You need to be, like we've talked about, you need to be really careful when you're doing threshold because that's a very fine line to dance over. When you get into VO2 stuff, it can be a bit more controlled all out efforts. And as long as you're going hard, you you get that sense. But the a thing that is very important, and I know I've had lots of experience with even guys I've trained with not going easy enough between the efforts. We have a, a climb here called NCAR. Every 4th of July, Neil would get our Apex coaching crew together and we do what we call 10CAR, which is 10 repeats up NCAR and you do a bunch of different intervals. It's like, depending on how fit you are, it's like an eight to 10 minute climb, depending on what you're doing. And there were some of those I'd remember riding with people. We'd start out the same going hard during the intervals, but then they would stay on the gas too much recover, like while we're still going uphill. And then their intervals would slowly fade. And then by the top, I'd just rip past them because... I was recovering properly on the easy parts because I was going slow, like not coming to a standstill, but like it's hard to go up a 9% gradient at 50 watts, but that's what you need to do. So yeah, so for intervals, if you're doing high intensity intervals, absolutely the recovery in between should be super, super easy. Yeah, I mean, I would, I would kind of tag onto that and say that that is something that, you know, you do see riders doing now, you know, because oftentimes people are sharing their, their rides and their power files on social media. So, you know, people are like, oh yeah, look, I did this, you know, three hour ride and I averaged 280 watts. It's like, yeah, well, that's, that's great. And uh, oftentimes, you know, it's a screen that people are looking at, oh, what was my average power? What was my normalized power? But if your workout is intervals, you know, I, I distinctly remember when I first moved to to the South of France, was training around the hills of Nice and you know, I did an interval and I was on this kind of flat road up at the top, just cruising. And I came across Bauka Molema, who I think was me, I forget which team he was at at the time, but he was going so slow. I'm like, what is he doing? He's like, oh, I just did my intervals. And I was like, oh, like it, it kind of was something that clicked. Like your intervals are intervals and those are on and like maximize those. You, and oftentimes coaches now are prescribing recovery zones, like stay in those zones. Like there's no problem in going easier than is maybe prescribed in your recovery zone because the goal is to hit the power numbers during the effort, you know? And oftentimes, like I said, now people want to see, oh, cool. I did this big ride and I burned more kilojoules. And my average power was higher, but most interval sessions, well, all interval sessions, the purpose isn't to have the highest average power over the whole ride. It's to maximize those, you know, very specific zones that you're trying to hit. And the harder the effort, the easier the recovery needs to be between. I appreciate it. it might not be a, a single answer to this, Ian, but to give us uh, or to give our listeners some examples of the type of power zones that you're trying to hit and activate during your interval sessions, where do you place your focus when you're doing intervals? Uh, well, it's, it's a bit different now where um, you know, the, the gravel stuff, you know, I actually, I'm, I mean, I used to be kind of very opposed to any sort of, you know, sweet spot, tempo, you know, sub-threshold work gravel races tend to kind of be, especially the long ones, kind of, you spend a lot of time in that zone. So I, I kind of now do the, you know, a lot of kind of these cool, I go out and just ride at a uncomfortable pace that no one, you know, it's easier to ride by myself, but I still do do a lot of VO2 max efforts, you know, and those are oftentimes, you know, for, for, because I'm here by my, mostly myself training in, in Vermont, you know, oftentimes those are, you know, four to five minute efforts at really high intensity, you know, and I have other little tricks that I use, you know, there's a couple of KOMs that already have around my neighborhood and I oftentimes just go for those, you know, cause I kind of, it, it's a way of pacing myself as well. You know, I kind of know the speed and the time. And I think there is some, I think there's some benefit of doing certain efforts are on the same roads. You know, if there's a climb that you know is about four minutes, you know, it's also something to see because yes, your power tells you one thing, you know, that shows you, cool, I did this much power, but there's so many other factors, I think, to cycling that aren't always measurable, you know, your efficiency, you know, so if you're doing, you know, every, every week you go to, you know, a certain climb and you do, I don't know, four by four minute VO2 efforts, 
as the year goes on, you might realize, cool, I'm doing slightly more power, but I'm actually getting a lot further up that climb. And that was something always for me that was a really good indicator of how am I riding? You know, maybe as the year went on, I was, I was more efficient, you know, I was spending more time in the saddle, more time, you know, riding smoothly, you know, cause it's easy to, I don't want to say you can trick your power meter, but you can, you know, you can ride harder and put out more power and go the same speed as riding slightly more efficient. So that was something for me that I kind of always tried to do a certain interval sessions would always be done on a particular road or kind of repeats run on the same climb throughout the whole year. I was going to ask you actually, whether you prefer to do intervals inside or outside, whether for a, a preference or because perhaps it's easier to hit, not easier to hit a, a number on a smart trainer, but you can get some assistance from the smart trainer in terms of using ergmo, but it sounds like you use both for different reasons. Yeah. I mean, I mean a lot of it's dictated by, by weather for me, you know, but, but especially the the low gear kind of the torque type efforts, you know, those are so easy and efficient to do inside, you know, b- because, you know, oftentimes now with, with smart trainers, you know, you can, you can't cheat the workout, you know, it's easy outside to, you know, essentially you can kind of drop power or you can, you know, pick up your cadence, drop it, you can get around it. But oftentimes, you know, if you are riding on, on erg mode, you shift the gears and like, well, the, the power meter on, on the trainer already knows it's going to drop you back to the power that you need to be. So I find those intervals very easy to do inside comparatively you know it's also because an indoor bike is, is is more stationary than riding outside you know it's really a time to kind of focus on body stability on the bike as well you know it's easy to kind of rock and roll when you're outside and you stand up and you're kind of you know throwing your bike from side to side so to really while doing those efforts inside to work on just kind of solid and, and stable on the bike as well matt going back to that point around someone who has fairly limited time to train and often it's easier to block out the same time each week or, or smaller chunks of time. If that is the case, would you recommend someone uses a smart trainer for intervals so they can get the most out of that particular session? This is another great, it depends situation. I'd say yes, like the majority of the time, yes, doing on those things on a smart trainer is great. People can become overly reliant on erg mode and then not really know how to gauge or pace an effort themselves. So I would still... Like when I still do intervals, I'll do a mix of some of them. I'll be in erg mode and it just sets it. And some of them I'll do them in what we call level mode or slope mode, where I have to be in control of finessing that exact power. I think there's a lot of benefit to being able to pace stuff yourself and and erg mode. It's nice and simple, but it kind of completely detaches that part of your brain that tries to finesse that sort of effort. So I think for the a lot of efforts, yeah, it's, it's great to have them in in erg mode, but I would caution people against only relying on that i'd say you know try from time to time doing some of those efforts in level mode and you might be surprised at how after doing that a couple times you can get a lot better very quickly you might be surprised at first how bad you are at holding a certain power but then you do a few efforts and you'll you'll see pretty quickly that you can improve on that side and another question related to the use of a smart trainer or an indoor trainer for intervals i think typically a lot of riders when they are training indoors do use the indoor trainer for intervals. A lot of the sessions that are prescribed on Swift and other platforms are interval-based sessions. So for someone that actually has a decent amount of time to train, is there a risk of burnout by doing too many intervals through winter or by only using the smart trainer for quite high intensity work? I would say that's a risk, even if it's people with with even limited time, like there really needs to be a balancing act. And, we, and kind of that gets back to the idea of like the polarized training, right? It's for every two hard sessions, you should have eight easy sessions, you know, whatever, however you want to balance that out. I don't think it necessarily needs to be that extreme. But if you are doing three sessions a week, if you do like max intensity sessions three times a week, if you do that for a month straight, you're going to burn out, even though you might say, oh, I'm only riding for 
two hours a week if it's all about high intensity and you're not having some easier rides dispersed or an easier week then you do risk burning out and that just becomes more likely as you start adding on more volume yeah, man, I would just add to that. I mean, I think especially with people who are doing, you know, tons of riding in, inside, whether it's on system and you see so you're constantly doing intervals or you're, you're jumping into a virtual world and, you know, every every time you jump into Watopia, you're trying to go for the KOM. I mean, I I found that when I first started riding Zwift, I mean, I don't know, seven or eight years ago, you know, it's like every time I jumped on to ride, I was like, cool, I can get the KOM jersey for, I mean, I'm sure it's different now because people are faster, but you kind of are constantly racing, you know, it's, you're constantly trying to keep up with someone or attack someone. And, and that's a really hard thing as an individual to switch off when you jump into a, you know, a virtual world or even, you know, an interval session, it's easy to be like, Oh, every, I'm going to gain something every day. And like, there are also as, you know, Mac would attest to there's, there's gains to be made through steady state riding, you know, through zone two riding. It's easy to kind of get sucked into, Oh, cool. If I'm riding indoors, it's going to be super hot. And, you know, feels great to sweat in the middle of winter and you feel good. Like, Oh, I, you know, I feel thrashed after this ride, which is, you know, a good feeling to have and that's needed, but every ride you can't get off the the trainer and be like, Oh, I'm, I'm completely cooked because yeah, you'll very quickly, you know, both physically and I think also psychologically burn out. Yeah. I, there's a, a term I like to use, which is like Rocky Balboa syndrome, which, you know, Rocky, he's got all the great montages of his training. I think people get, get into that mindset of just every time I'm going out there and I'm going hard, I'm going all out, I'm leaving nothing on the table. You, you miss out. They don't show you in those montages all the time he sleeps and stuff and recovers, but you get that notion of just, if I'm on the bike, I should be going hard and smashing it. And that's how I get better. And there's just a proclivity to, to get into that mindset and not take a step back and realize, okay, I should probably, I can go hard and smash myself, but I, I'm only going to get better if I recover from that. Something that we've spoken about in previous episodes, Mac, is the idea of using heart rate and, and also RPE alongside power in order to determine how you're feeling on the bike, the, the impact that the training's having on your body. So is that something that you also keep an eye on, Ian, to understand how you're reacting to the training and actually what your underlying state is? Absolutely. I, mean, I, I don't have a, a coach anymore. You know, I've also got a child at home and, you know, all these other things, kind of factors that play into just overall fatigue, whether it's missing sleep or, you know, inconsistent, you know, feeding schedules, because, you know, if anyone who has a kid knows, like your dinner comes second to, to your child's. So I think that's become a huge change for me is, is really more listening to my body. You know, there's times when carved out an hour and a half in, in the evening to go down to the basement and, and ride the trainer. And I get down there and I, you know, I start an effort or I start a, a workout and I decide, you know what, today's just, I'm not feeling it. There's times when you need to push through and you have to get the work done, but equally for the average rider. And even if you're at a relatively high level, there's times when you also need to check in with yourself and be like, you know what, maybe today I'm just going to do a 45 minute endurance ride. I'm just, I'm not feeling it. And maybe that'll allow me to have a better workout tomorrow. Some athletes, you know, do try to push through everything. Those are oftentimes the athletes that in, end up injured or overtrained. I think the the RPE is super important for people to kind of check in with. And, and it's hard to do because, you know, you really need to take a step back and, you know, see the forest through the trees because it's easy to just look at one day at a time. But kind of back to that consistency, you know, if you are limited on time, doing something is better than nothing, but sometimes always doing more isn't better than than doing less. And so I think that for myself, just given that there are so many other factors in my life that impact my training. That's something that I'm very cognizant of, of, is checking in on how am I feeling today and what can I actually get done with the time I have. And Mac, actually coming back to you, another question I had from Liam on the Bike Radar team on this subject, who's a really keen indoor rider. He asked, does a two-hour indoor trainer session purely in zone two equal a longer ride than the equivalent time outside? So on an indoor trainer, you're always pedaling, you're always in zone two. 
on an outdoor ride, you might be stopping for traffic lights or, or coasting. So do you get more of a training benefit and is there more of a stress on your body from doing the same amount of time inside? So this is always an interesting one because I know there's a lot of people who like to say like, oh, if you like 45 minutes inside is the same as an hour outside. And I think that was just people trying to make an excuse to go from, to not have to ride three hours on a trainer. So they say, oh, you know, that's the same as two hours, 15, that'll be fine. From a physiological standpoint, doing two hours nonstop is going to be better than two hours interspersed over like say two and a half hours of riding, just because your system's constantly in that aerobic basically the aerobic zone, as soon as you stop or, or have recovery for a bit, what's going to happen is your heart rate goes down, your breathing rate goes down. So as you start to get back up to an effort again, there's that small amount of time at the beginning that is coming from anaerobic energy systems. So you're not taxing the specific, even though the power is the same. If you stop every you know 10 minutes, you have these like 20 second bursts at the start of all these intervals that are essentially anaerobic in nature and not aerobic in nature. So if you are somewhere where there's a lot of traffic or stopping and you're supposed to do an endurance ride and you have the mental fortitude or a good Netflix series to watch and just ride consistently for two hours, that is going to be better. It's also just more time efficient. Like if you have, and that's one of the big things for riding indoors, especially in the winter, especially places where the weather's not so great. If I have three hours to ride, that means I can probably do about two and a half hours of riding outside because I need to all the gear to get myself set up to dress all that. When I come home, I know I need to spray down my bike because there's a bunch of grime on it and I don't want that thing to, to rust up. So you have all these other factors going into that cut into the time you have to ride. When I was just training full time, if I had five hours on a weekend, that was fine because I had nothing else to do that whole day. But when you get to a, a stance of you have specific chunks of time. It is just more time efficient to be indoors. It's maybe not as fun, but it is more time efficient and can be more beneficial. Yeah, and just out of interest on that point, what's the longest you've spent on the indoor trainer in a single session? Uh, well, there is this thing called the Sufferlandria Knighthood, which I did do, which I think is like close to 10 hours. But that was it, was, it was all, you know, it was a very social thing. That was the by far the longest ride I've ever done inside. But I would say most of the riding that I do inside is less than, is 90 minutes or less. You know, I think very seldom do I do a workout indoors that's, that's over that. And, and I also, I mean, just personally for me, I think a lot of it's, you know, it's, it's psychological. It's, you know, I, as much as I enjoy training, if I'm riding indoors, I can get a lot done in 90 minutes, even if it's an endurance ride, you know, maybe it's what I, I tend to do is if I can swing it, I'll kind of do it, split it up and do a double day. Maybe I do, you know, an hour in the morning and maybe I do hour, hour and a half in the evening for myself. I just find that a little bit more manageable than, than jumping on and doing one, three hour ride indoors. Um, and you also with that, you can, you can kind of mix up what you're doing. Like I said, maybe you do, you know, some lower intensity intervals in the morning and then in the evening, it's literally just a, a base ride. And you know, you're getting that volume without kind of getting, you know, the other thing with inside is, you know, you do get so sweaty and, you know, oftentimes you just kind of run out of things to watch. I know there's a lot on the internet, but my, my attention span is too short to, you know, get through a whole, you know, whole Lord of the Rings in, in one indoor session. Yeah. 10 hour indoor training session is, um, that's, incredible that's a uh, yeah it's some serious uh, some serious motivation and so clearly some good pals there if it's a social ride good people to talk to you for 10 hours 
Indeed. Yeah. Yeah. I wouldn't, I wouldn't necessarily recommend it, but if you, if you did do it with a group of friends, you know, it is, it is something fun to do, but I think I, I, yeah, did it one time, got my knighthood. And I think that's probably the last time I'll ever, ever spend an entire day. I mean, cause especially in, it was in the middle of winter in Vermont, you know, I woke up, it was dark. I started and I got off and it was still dark. You know, I kind of missed a whole day of my life. When I uh, did my knighthood as well, we did it in a, in a group, there were six of us. And I think that was very key to getting through that because you have some pretty low lows over a, a 10 hour ride day, but then you have some good highs. And so it, it helped balance everyone out that when someone was feeling bad, other people were feeling good, but yeah, I'm the same as he, and I've done it once and I'm a okay, never doing it again. Well, hopefully the highs always outweigh the lows, but in more typical circumstances, Ian, if you have 90 minutes or 60 minutes to train, is there one specific go-to session that you have that either because the, you feel like the training benefit is particularly strong or it's just a session that you enjoy. What, what's your kind of go-to session? Yeah. And, and there are, you know, plenty of, you know, there's a plethora of different virtual platforms available for people to ride indoors. I tend to stay on, on Wahoo system. I mean, not just because I work there, but I, if I, I if I'm going to my basement, I'm going to try to get something out of that workout. And oftentimes there's a workout called goat, which I think is like only 45 minutes. It's, I think there's like eight by two minute kind of low low cadence, you know, higher power workouts, pretty short warm up. I think there's a minute off and I think for me as well, you know, I really struggle to do longer intervals inside, you know, kind of anything between, you know, 2 and 4 minutes. Like if there's, you know, kind of on off, I think there's an an added stimulus for me doing psychologically to to do efforts that are shorter inside but that, I, I probably do that workout I, I don't know we could probably look at the data but maybe as much as anyone in the world because you know oftentimes when i jump on the trainer that's that's the workout i i tend to lean on and throwing things uh, ahead a little bit to, to next year something we've spoken about in previous podcasts in this series is periodization so how would your training or how might your training differ from what you're doing now to what you're doing in the build-up to uh, Unbound, for example, particularly in the context of the intervals that you might be doing and the base training that you might be doing? I mean, I think kind of almost reverse to base training. I guess my volume definitely increases the closer I get to to Unbound. Um, just because that, and, and you know, again, a lot of people who are listening probably aren't preparing for a 10-hour race. There's kind of no way around that. You do have to do increased volume. Oftentimes, so that is, and I guess it does look more like maybe one or two long rides a week, you know, because it's a one day event as well. You know, it's not a stage race. So oftentimes, you know, maybe a couple six hour rides in the weeks leading up and maybe one, you know, seven hour ride. I kind of view it as, you know, very few marathon runners are running marathons in training, you know, so I don't oftentimes or I've actually never done a 10 hour training ride other than the the ride inside. But I would say my volume increases also just, you know, as the weather increases, you know, the daylight increases, it becomes easier to get outside and, and do a, you know, some longer stuff on on the weekends. I think that's a very good thing to to point out that yeah as as people as the weather gets nicer people want to spend and do spend more time riding outside and then the the only thing to be careful there is you know make sure you balance that out with a bit of reduced intensity I think what Ian just described and has gained a lot of popularity is basically called re- it's reverse periodization where you basically start with intensity shorter volume and then as you get closer to the event you you increase the volume I think that makes a lot of sense for if you're inside in the winter and can't ride outside that much, it just makes a lot of sense to to structure it that way. So yeah, I would say that even if even if you have big events coming up in the summer, like now it's not unreasonable for now to be some of your highest intensity riding of the year, just in terms of a raw percentage of what you're doing, with that knowing that as your volume goes up, you have to back something off on the intensity. I think that example of a marathon runner not 
needing to run marathons to prepare for marathons is really, uh, really interesting. Well, and actually leads on to my next question really nicely, Mac, in terms of, is it possible to quantify how much base someone actually needs? And related to that, does it depend on your events and your goals? Because clearly someone who's preparing for one hour criteriums has a different uh, objective to Ian preparing for a 10 hour race at Unbound. I, I would almost make the argument that it's more dependent on where you're at physically versus really what you're training for. There are going to be some people who just genuinely have such a good aerobic foundation that they don't need a lot of base training or like a lot of extra base training isn't going to do a lot of good. I think there's a term that we always used to throw around for some of the the guys I used to race with who were all older and used to be pros, we call the old man strength, where it's just those guys had so much foundation of aerobic fitness that like they were just always strong and all that mattered was how kind of how sharp they were how how they got that intensity out so i think if you're newer to to riding don't have that many years then you probably like having a bit more of the lower intensity just to get your body more adapted to riding on the bike just getting more adapted to the endurance nature of cycling would probably be more appropriate instead of just saying oh i'm only doing a criterium so i don't need to ride that long i think it really depends where you're at on your sort of endurance training journey like i would argue that I were to try and come in and, and do what Ian's doing, obviously at a different level, but like the background he has from racing at the World Tour, that sort of stuff, like that innate foundation is a lot more built out for Ian than myself or, or a lot of people. So it can be, you know, the the good specificity is what's more important for someone like Ian. Whereas, yeah, if you're if you've never done a hundred mile ride and you're gonna go do unbound, which is two hundred miles, you probably want to just get time in the saddle yeah I mean, i'll just kind of build on that you know this this spring kind of in the run-up to unbound you know for anyone who was following along with with keegan svensson and russell finsterwald you know they came from an exio mountain bike background you know these kind of 90 minute pretty intense races they were out in tucson getting ready for unbound and they were doing i think they did like three weeks of like almost 40 hours and everyone was like what the heck are they doing i was like yeah but they don't have the endurance like someone like myself or ted king or pete stetna who have a background in doing endurance you know so as max says you know for me it's more yes making sure my endurance is kind of topped off but you know for me it's oftentimes more the the sh kind of high intensity stuff that i need to be ready for these races so it really does depend on on your background kind of where you know where your strengths and weaknesses are as, as well to kind of maximize becoming a more rounded athlete and in terms of your experience uh, throughout your career Ian, does that match uh, Max' advice in terms of finding specificity? So as a junior, for example, you have less specificity and less need to, to hone your specific strengths and weaknesses than you do as a as a gravel racer or as a world tour pro. Yeah, I mean, and I think it's also easy to lean into what you're good at. You know, if you if you happen to be, you know, a really good climber, it's easy to go do all your efforts on climbs, you know, which is great. And you, you need to, con you know, my dad kind of always told me, you know, improve your weaknesses, raise your strengths, you know, which is like, I mean, it's pretty obvious advice, but, you know, for myself, it's easy to go do all my efforts on an 8% climb because I feel good. I like climbing, you know, it's easy to put out the power. But what I need to work on is, you know, putting out high power on a flat road or a, you know, a 2% downhill, which is something I don't necessarily enjoy. I'm not as good at it, but also, you know, doing efforts in environments that maybe aren't as comfortable for you, whether it's different position on the bikes. And, and one thing that I do a lot riding indoors, you know, if I'm doing a, an interval session that has, you know, four or five different 
intervals, you know, I'll also mix up the position I'm doing it on the bike. You know, so sometimes I'm on the hood, sometimes I'm on the drop, sometimes I'm standing, especially I do this inside because it's easy to kind of just get stuck in one fixed position. I'm also fortunate I have the kicker bike. So sometimes, you know, I'll do a quote, I'm going to do it 2% downhill gradient, or I'm going to do it, you know, at 3% uphill, kind of mixing up these different stimuluses because once you do go outside, oftentimes you are required to put out power in, in different positions on the bikes, different gradients of the road. So th- that is something you can also kind of mimic indoors as well. And my last question goes to you, Mac. What would be your, your final piece of advice for anyone trying to find balance through winter when they're considering the, the makeup of their training program and how much base training they should do and how much intensity they should do? I think my advice would be, you know, be consistent. It's better to have a bit of riding several times a week than just one or two really big sessions. I think just always, it's hard to do too much volume. It's pretty easy to do too much intensity. So it's really just finding a balance with the time you have available to train and then the time you have available to recover. If you live a super stressful life, work, family, all that stuff, and your your hour you have to to ride is getting up an hour earlier in the morning, that's taking away an hour of recovery. So you need to be kind of aware of where you're making concessions and, and missing out on the recovery. So, I mean, my, my best advice would be, you know, find the consistent time to, to do some riding, throw some intensity in there and just really keep checking in with yourself and be honest and objective of like, wow, I'm really fatigued. If that's the case, then, you know, take dial it back for a week, see what you did, maybe you know, your next block, dial it back a little bit, whether that's just doing one less intense session or just a little less volume. It's really a, a give and take. And, and honestly, we're all our best and worst enemies with them when it comes to that, like you're your best advocate, you're going to be able to help yourself more than anyone, but you can also really kind of screw yourself over. So just be, be honest with yourself and be, just be smart. Don't just, you know, bash your head against a wall and expect good things to happen. I would just add one more thing. I mean, I think it's also always helped me to work backwards from my objectives. You know, so for example, if you're kind of what you're training for and what you're preparing for, whether it's a, you know, a Grand Fondo or a bike tour with your friends, if that's in June or July, don't begin your training in December with a 10-hour training. I mean, you can, you can start small and build up to that. And if you start kind of from your end goal and work backwards, you can start to see like, cool, how much, how do I gradually increase my fitness? Because you know, I know very well if, you know, you've taken a, a period of time off the bike or, you know, you've been sick and you come back, you want to jump into where you left off. And oftentimes, you know, any athlete, you know, you kind of end your season, you're burnt out, peak fitness, you take a break, you come back and you think, oh man, how come I'm, how come I'm getting tired? Or how come I can't do this power? Like, well, take it step by step and, and you will get back to that level, but just be, be realistic with kind of where you're at, where you're coming from and where you want to go. And that's fantastic advice to, to end it on. And, and also to reiterate Max's point, to listen to your body those of us who aren't pro athletes and even pro athletes i'm sure we all got pressures and stresses and strains outside of uh, outside of bike riding that have an influence on what we can do on the bike ian talking of uh, pressures and stresses and strains you're off to mexico tomorrow so what's what's next for you clearly a couple of weeks of holiday but you're taking the bike with you i am yeah yeah i, I mean like i said it's kind of one of those golden windows when i get some warm weather and and, and less time uh on, on the computer and more time on my bike. So yeah, I'm heading down to Mexico for a couple of weeks of riding. And then hopefully by the time we get back to Vermont, it's uh, got some snow on the ground for some skiing and, and then kind of back into kind of a, a gradual build up to, to Unbound 2024, which uh, will be my fourth edition, which seems crazy. I never thought I would want to do that event four times, but lo and behold, I'll, I'll, I'll be back. Back for a fourth edition of Unbound. Well, uh, we'll be watching you with with interest and and going to you Mac I know uh, we we've spoken about your time in Boulder over the last few weeks been plunged into winter yeah 
we have we finally got some snow we kind of went straight from uh summer kind of skipped fall and just went straight into winter so it's been i think it was about negative four c yesterday morning so proper winter here now good well we'll have you back on next week for our final episode in this series and that is to do hopefully debunk some trainer myths so we'll catch up over the next week and have a chat about the trainer myths that we're going to dissect but really looking forward to that one and uh, ian have a fantastic holiday and really appreciate you taking time out of your schedule to join us today absolutely thanks george and yeah good to speak to you mac thanks for listening to the bike radar podcast if you've not done so already please subscribe and share with your friends or leave us a rating if you've enjoyed this episode 